You survived daylight savings. Congratulations. You actually showed up. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Well, Shepherds Conference has just wrapped up here in California, and it's been good to spend some time with Khalif and Pastor as they've been out here for the conference. But let's move on in Sunday school. We've been going through the New Testament and the book of Acts. Last week, we saw the conversion of Saul, this extremely surprising development in the plan of God, and the man who was leading the charge to the destruction of Christianity became a follower of Christ and a proclaimer of the good news of Christ. But this week, we're going to look at another surprise, and perhaps even a greater surprise, and that is that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. This chapter we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 10 should be a sweet section of scripture to you, because here we see that since most of us are Gentiles, we see our official inclusion in the Church of Christ as full and fellow inheritors of God's salvation by faith. This is something that we are never to take for granted, because though blessing to the Gentiles was foretold in the Old Testament, and it was even foretold and foreshadowed in Jesus' own ministry, it was still a surprise, and even to some, an offense when Gentiles were formally included. A surprise that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, would be saved apart from becoming Jews themselves. In fact, this was such a shock that for decades after the Gentiles' inclusion into the church, there was a dedicated group of Jewish Christians that continued to fight, trying to force new Gentile Christians to submit to Jewish laws and rituals in order to be saved. But in the passage we are going to look at today, we can see that the Bible totally contradicts any message that says that Gentiles, or indeed any person, must perform a work or ritual to be saved. In fact, the whole purpose of the book of Acts, I'm persuaded, is a validation of the Gentiles really being included in the gospel of salvation by faith. It's a validation of Paul's ministry. It's a validation of the gospel going to the Gentiles, not as an aberration of the original message from Jesus, but as a faithful declaration of it. God did with the Gentiles, God has done with the Gentiles, what could never have been expected or demanded. God extended to us salvation by faith alone in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we who were far off, as Paul says, were brought near, even to the very bosom of God. So let's pay close attention to this wonderful text today, being careful to keep one question in mind. Do I adore Jesus Christ for lovingly extending salvation to even me? Let's pray before we go on. Our Lord and God, thank you for this section of scripture. I pray that I might be able to explain it well, and Lord, I pray that you would Drive the, drive the meaning of it home into the hearts of each listener today, that they'd be affected, that they'd be changed, just as your word was meant to do so. Lord God, please work. Build up your church now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. This is where we're going to be spending our time today. 
Before we look at the first half of this chapter, let's just bring ourselves up to speed on the context. Acts chapter 9, we were primarily focused on the conversion of Saul. Saul had been leading this persecution against the church. The Lord arrested Saul on the Damascus road, gave Saul faith to believe, opened his eyes. And this persecution that Saul led subsided as Saul himself became a follower of Jesus. Church was growing up. Church was enjoying peace. And in the latter part of Acts chapter 9, we hear again about the ministry of Peter. Peter was not confined to Jerusalem. He was traveling around Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and he was preaching the message of salvation in Jesus, and he was doing miracles. We hear about two specific miracles towards the end of Acts chapter 9. Peter heals a man who was paralyzed for eight years, and Peter also raises a righteous widow from the dead. As people are seeing these confirming signs from God and hearing the message of Peter, they believed, and more people were saved. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 9, Peter is in Joppa, and that's where we find Peter in the beginning of Acts chapter 10. Joppa is a coastal town in Israel, actually part of modern Tel Aviv today. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 23, and see what the Lord does with Peter in Joppa. But before we hear about him, we're going to hear about a new person. So follow along with me, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 23. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this, what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they are asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. 
for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. All right, as we analyze this text, we want to follow our method of observe, interpret, apply. And we start with observations. In this passage, we meet a certain man named Cornelius living in Caesarea. And this is Caesarea Maritima again, the Roman capital of Judea, city on the northern coast of Israel. Cornelius is a centurion. What's a centurion? Right, technically a leader of 100. Uh, it's a Roman military position. He's a kind of a low-level commander in the Roman army. And he would be the leader of a century, uh, a Roman military unit. It says he's from the Italian cohort. That would be a component of a legion that was raised in Italy. So is this man a Jew or Gentile? Clearly a Gentile. And he's an Italian. He's going to end up be the first Italian convert to Christ in the Bible. I don't know. That makes me especially happy. It says also that he's a devout man. A devout man with his entire household. He's giving alms. He prays to God. So does this man believe in Yahweh? Yeah, he does. That's what it means to be a devout man. He's a God-fearer. He's someone who believes in Yahweh. He's even called a righteous man. But does he believe in Christ? No, he doesn't. And that's going to become even clearer in the rest of the passage. Why doesn't this centurion believe in Jesus? Because he hasn't heard the message about Jesus. He's not very dissimilar from the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who fears God, but has not heard about Jesus Christ, or has not heard the whole message about Jesus Christ. So an angel appears to this Cornelius in a vision. This happens at the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour again? About three o'clock. Remember, we started our day around 6 a.m. So the ninth hour would be around three o'clock. This is afternoon. Angel appears, comes into his house, and notice Cornelius' reaction. He's afraid. That's usually how people react when they see an angel or something supernatural. But the angel, far from announcing any message of doom, he says... That, or he acknowledges the man's prayers and generosity. He said these have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, what's God's attitude toward Cornelius's prayers and giving? If they've ascended as a memorial before God, what's God's attitude? He's pleased. The Lord is pleased with this man's prayers and his giving. And, all right, so what? The angel mentions this. What's the point? So, the angel gives Cornelius a message, a command. Send to Joppa for a certain man named Simon, also called Peter. Tell him to come to your house. 
And you'll find this guy, Peter, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, who's dwelling by the sea. By the way, what's a tanner? Tanner is someone who works with animal skins. He makes leather. So Peter is staying at the house of this certain tanner named Simon. Now, what's this Peter going to do when he comes? The angel doesn't say. But it does tell Cornelius, send for this Peter. The angel departs. Cornelius, after explaining the vision, he sends three men, two servants and a devout soldier, that is, another Gentile believer in Yahweh. And he sends them to Joppa. This would be approximately a 30-mile trip. It takes two days for the trio to arrive. And they arrive at Simon the Tanner's house around noon the next day, says the sixth hour. Now notice what Peter doing when they arrive. He's praying on the roof of Simon's house. Now we've seen this kind of behavior a number of times in the Bible. It's not weird for them to be on the roof. That was something that people in that culture and climate would do. It was also a place that people would often pray or worship. But he's praying and he's also hungry. And he enters the trance and he sees a vision while on the roof and while praying. And notice what he sees. He sees a sheet being let down by its four corners. And in the sheet are all kinds of animals and birds. We're not immediately told specifically what these animals are or anything about them, but what does Peter later note about these animals? Some of them, at least, are not clean, perhaps all of them. Now recall that, what, what is this referring to? This goes back to the law of Moses. This is one of the commands that God gave Israel through Moses, specifically in Leviticus 11, where Israel was forbidden from eating certain foods such as what kind of foods? They couldn't eat pig, couldn't eat any kind of pig, couldn't eat shellfish, couldn't eat reptiles, couldn't eat camels, couldn't eat rabbits, couldn't eat dogs, and various other things. Why did God make this rule again? Yeah, that's a, go ahead. Okay, I think you finished your answer. Yeah, uh, primarily it's about keeping the people separate. Now, it's true. Some have noted that there, there may have been some health benefits to the law that God, give, God gave and to eating, not eating the certain kinds of animals at that time. But primarily, this is about keeping Israel distinct from its pagan neighbors because what's the most basic way that you fellowship with another person? You share a meal together. But if you can't eat what he eats, you can't do that. So basically, within the law, God had placed this provision where Israel would not be able to hang out with the pagans and learn their idolatrous ways. It came down even to their food. It's not that these things were evil in themselves, but this was a way that God was going to keep his people separate. So this would be a great surprise then as Peter looks at these unclean animals and he hears this command from God, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat these unclean animals. You're hungry, go ahead, eat what's set before you. And Peter's reaction is, no way. I have never eaten something unclean and unholy. And we can understand that reaction. 
these dietary laws were deeply ingrained in the Jews. How could he violate them? And this command from God assuredly made no sense to Peter. Maybe this was a test from God. But God's response to Peter's objection is profound. God says, what God has cleansed, do not consider or no longer consider unholy. So what was God saying about the food that was presented? It's clean. I've cleansed it. Don't consider it unclean anymore. Now, this would be quite a declaration. For almost 1,500 years, 1,500 years, Jews were forbidden to eat certain foods. Now, put that in perspective. America has only been a nation for about 250 years. Could you imagine if some rule that was established at our beginning was suddenly overturned? Now imagine a rule that lasted five times longer, 1,500 years. These dietary laws, along with the Sabbath and along with circumcision, they practically defined Judaism in the eyes of the world. Oh, yeah, he's a Jew. He's one of those weirdos that doesn't eat certain foods. This is one of the things that really made the Jews distinct. But now God is taking that away? He seemingly cleansed unclean food? What is going on? And it's not as if there's a bad connection or an error in the vision, because notice it says the same thing happened three different times. The sheet dropped from its, with its four corners. There was this command from God three times to rise, kill, and eat. Three times Peter refuses, and three times God declares, don't consider unholy what I have cleansed. Peter doesn't understand this vision. He keeps pondering it. He's greatly perplexed. But what do you know? At precisely that moment, three men appear at the door of Simon's house. The three men who were sent by Cornelius. Was that a coincidence? Not at all, since the Spirit then directly instructs Peter about these three men looking for him and tells Peter to accompany these men without misgivings because the Spirit has sent these men himself. So Peter does receive the men. These men explain their mission, and then Peter invites the men in and gives them lodging. Now, don't miss the significance of those last two actions. In inviting them in, Peter, a Jew, has just invited Gentiles to stay in his house. Really, Simon's house, but Peter's staying there. He's invited Gentiles to stay in his house. And moreover, it's lunchtime. So unless he's an extremely rude host, what else has Peter shared with those who have just arrived? He shared a meal. Now that literally is not kosher. God, God never specifically commanded Jews to have to not be in the same space as Gentiles, to withdraw from Gentiles. Nevertheless, this was a firmly established Jewish custom. After all, Gentiles ate unclean foods. They would very likely be unclean. So to be around Gentiles was to risk contamination. So the Jews never, if they could avoid it, went into the dwelling of a Gentile or received Gentiles into their own dwellings, much less shared a meal together with a Gentile. In fact, 
the Jews often viewed Gentiles with contempt as ignorant, unclean, disgusting pagans who were only fit for one of two things, to be subjugated under the future Jewish Messiah when he came, or to be destroyed outright in the day of the Lord. Gentiles were dogs. They're not fit for fellowship, and they're not fit to have in your own home. That was the prevailing attitude among the Jews. But Peter invites these Gentiles in, gives them lodging, shares meals with them, and even worse, one of Peter's guests is a Roman soldier. And how did the Jews feel about Roman soldiers? The prevailing attitude is one of resentment and hatred because the Romans were the ones who ruled the Jews. And the Jews greatly resented this. They greatly resented paying taxes to Rome. And now a Roman soldier is in a Jew's house. Peter has committed, and Simon along with him, has committed some major taboos. But it only gets worse because then Peter accompanies these Gentiles back to their dwelling the next day. And he even takes some of the brethren, that is, some of the Jewish Christians, with him. Now, what is going on? This is extremely shocking. Well, something wonderful has actually happened. And we get to see the conclusion of it in the rest of the chapter. Before we move to interpretation, let's observe the second half of this passage. Acts 10, verses 24 to 48. Follow along with me as we continue reading. On the following day, he, that's Peter, entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius said, Four days ago, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa, and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Excuse me, just one second. 
and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them, speaking with tongues, and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Just a wonderful, wonderful unveiling of the Lord's grace. Let's observe. Cornelius has gathered together his friends and close relatives. There's a whole bunch of people ready to receive Peter when he comes. But what does Cornelius do as soon as Peter arrives? He falls down to worship him. <laughs> now, if Peter were any other Jew of his day, any typical Jew, rather, he'd probably have said, that's right, pagan, bow to your superior. I'm God's chosen, you're an unclean dog. But that's not what Peter does. Peter actually grasps Cornelius, raises him up, and tells him, stand up. I too am just a man. Peter is coming to understand something. By the way, notice that Peter will not accept worship, even though, in contrast, Jesus readily accepts worship every time it's offered to him in the scriptures. Jesus, though a man, that's because he's not just a man, he's also God. Now, Peter admits to those who had assembled that what he's doing is unlawful according to Jewish tradition for him to visit Gentiles, go to their house. But God has shown Peter that Peter is to call no man unholy or unclean. Peter then asks why he was called for. Cornelius then relates his experience and his desire to hear whatever God has given Peter to say. And so what does Peter do? He shares the good news about Jesus Christ. And notice the opening. Peter declares, I now see that God is no respecter of persons, but welcomes every person in every nation who fears him and does what is right. Peter then rehearses the main points of the gospel. He talks about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' appearances after his resurrection, the future judgment that Jesus will preside over, and the availability of salvation and forgiveness of sins in Jesus to everyone who believes in Jesus. But then notice, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, 
So he hadn't even finished his gospel explanation yet. He hasn't made an altar call. He hasn't called on the people to repent. He hasn't told them to pray a prayer. What happens? The Holy Spirit falls visibly on all those who are listening to the message, on the Gentiles. And what do they start doing? They speak in tongues and they exalt God. Of course, what event does this remind us of? This is like Pentecost. This is like the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Jews at Pentecost. And Peter notes the same thing. By the way, for the onlookers to notice that the people are exalting God in the various tongues, what does that indicate about those tongues? They had to be known languages. They had to be understandable, else they would have no idea what they were doing in those tongues. So again, we see that, that same truth reinforced. It's just like the day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost, known languages, here, known languages. But nonetheless, the Jews with Peter are amazed. And notice how they're described. They're not actually called Jews or brethren, but the circumcised believers. Now, that description brings out a contrast. If there are circumcised believers, then that means that there are some there who are not circumcised. And yet, this is what's happening to them. These other believers, not circumcised, and yet they are being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is amazing to the Jews. And I like Peter's response to this. He asks, surely no one can refuse baptism for these who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? That's a rhetorical question. The expected answer is no. Obviously, you can't refuse baptism for these people. Peter then, Peter then orders the, these Holy Spirit-filled Gentiles to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and is brought into full identification with Christ and with Christ's church. And Peter then stays with his new Gentile brothers and sisters for a few days. Just wonderful. All right, we've observed this whole chapter now. We've looked at various details. Let's now ask a number of interpretation questions trying to answer things that aren't stated explicitly in the text, but through which we can uh, look at the details that have observed and answer some questions. First, what was Peter's vision of the sheet really about? Peter says, God has shown me I should, I should see no man as unholy or unclean. So the vision was not primarily about food. It was primarily about men. Do not call what I have cleansed unclean any longer. Now, what was shown in the vision about food is still true. There is a connection there. If the food is clean, then the men are clean, and vice versa. But primarily, the message was, it's the men who are clean. Do not consider Gentiles or any person unclean. That's why Peter says, God has shown me this, and that's why I came. Peter's vision of the sheet was really about people. But consider the way that things play out at Cornelius' house. And on the basis of that, we should ask, what is a necessary right for salvation? 
Is circumcision a necessary right for salvation? No. And how do we know that? Well, right, we could go, yes, outside the scripture and go back to Abraham. This is a point that the New Testament authors make. Abraham shows that salvation does not require circumcision because Abraham is accounted righteous before circumcision. But even in this passage, we can say that circumcision is not necessary because the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles who are uncircumcised. Moreover, we can also ask, is baptism a necessary right for salvation? It's not. And for the same reason, because the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles who were not baptized. Now even, is prayer a necessary right for salvation? That is, do you have to pray a certain set of words before you can be saved? The answer is no. And how do we know that? Because these people here do not pray, and yet the Holy Spirit fills them. So, for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, what must have happened in the span of Peter's message that caused the Holy Spirit to indwell them? They believed. They simply believed the gospel of Christ. They believed in Jesus. And that's what Jesus taught repeatedly, right? He who believes in me will have eternal life. And that's exactly what Peter declared in his own message. Everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. This is the essence of salvation. This is what is required of those who would be saved. Simply faith in Jesus. These Gentiles heard the message, they believed it, and they were saved. And as a result, the Holy Spirit indwelt them. Now, we have a tradition today in our, in our Christianity that you must pray to be saved. And there's nothing wrong with expressing your belief in Christ in a, in a moment of prayerful worship. But understand that if your heart does not truly believe in Jesus... Your prayer, whether it's uttered out loud or just in your mind, it's meaningless. If your heart doesn't believe, your prayer is meaningless. But if your heart does believe, then you're saved before you even begin to pray. Prayer is not even required. It's faith. It's belief. And we see that modeled even here in this instance. There is no rite. There is no ritual. There is no work that is required for salvation. It is simply by faith that God gives us his salvation grace. So clearly, adherence to the rituals of the Old Testament was not required of the Gentiles for salvation. But what about for the Jews? Actually, hold on. <clears throat> Were rituals required for the Jews to be saved? No, not if the Gentiles can be saved without them. Salvation is the same for each person. God is no respecter of person. Each person, just as Peter says in his own message, each person who believes will be saved. There's no ritual required. But wait a second. How can God change the rules? I mean, he required these things for a long time. 
1,500 years, how can he just change things and no longer require certain rituals for his people? It's an arbitrary declaration from God? Well, we need to know two things. Sorry, my nose keeps on sniffling here. First of all, adherence to rituals in the Old Testament never saved. Salvation has always been by faith. No man could perfectly keep all the rituals and sacrifices that were prescribed in the law. And as somebody already alluded to, we can go back to Abraham as the example of salvation. He was accounted righteous before God because he believed God, not because of anything he did, not because of circumcision or any other ritual. And Habakkuk 2.4 at the end of the Old Testament, it also says explicitly that righteous will live by faith. It's always been salvation by faith, even though these rituals were present. But in a second answer, we need to understand that the rituals and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled them on behalf of all those who believe in him so that there is no need for them anymore. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrew chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So he's speaking there specifically about the sacrificial system, but he's saying the law is a shadow of the good things to come, referring to Christ and the realities in Christ. Paul picks up on this same theme in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. And he applies this to various rituals and ceremonial laws. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These rituals, these symbols of the Old Testament law, they were fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, they are no longer necessary. It's not that God just arbitrarily canceled them, but they fulfilled their purpose. And so they no longer need to be followed. Now, if somebody wants to, if they still want to abstain from certain foods, or if they still want to hold a certain day as special above others, Paul says in Romans 14, that's fine. Can't impose that on other people. Shouldn't judge other people on the basis of that. That's fine if he wants to do that for himself, wants to honor the or. He wants to do that in order to honor the Lord, not required. It's fine, because those things have been fulfilled. Now, what's the implication of all this for Jew and Gentile in Christ's church? If the ritual laws have been fulfilled and no longer apply, and if the Gentiles are not considered unclean and receive the Holy Spirit the same way as the Jews, What's the implication for Christ's church? Unity. Jew and Gentile become one in Christ. There is no inequality. There is really no distinction. They are full and fellow heirs and inheritors of salvation blessing. 
This was no accident. This was no reactionary plan of God. This was always his good and gracious purpose to make one flock, one body, one bride. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. In fact, actually, why don't you turn over there? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. I made a reference to this not too long ago, but we're going to read the whole passage now. Excuse me, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Paul is writing to this primarily Gentile church in Ephesus, and he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by the flesh and human, by human hands, remember that you were at that time, the time before they were saved, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the, the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What's the enmity? He says, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And we're not going to analyze that whole text, but notice the total emphasis on equality for Jew and Gentile in Christ. They are fellow citizens. They are both part of God's household. They are part of the same holy temple of God. They are both indwelt with God's spirit. There is no dividing wall. There are no different ordinances for one or the other. They have both received full salvation blessing. Consider the significance of Ephesians chapter 1. If you know that passage, you know that it's just this uh, continual uh, meditation on the great blessings of salvation. Verses 3 to 14 are all one sentence in the original Greek. But who is that being spoken to? Gentiles says, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Jew and Gentile, but this church would have been predominantly Gentile, you have these full salvation blessings. You're not second-class citizens. You're not mere um, slaves while the others are sons. No, you've both been brought into God's family. This is God's great work. Jesus has made all one. He saved them all. And he will glorify them all, all who believe in him. Therefore, there is no room for prejudice or extra requirements from one member of God's body versus another. And consider this great grace from God. It was a great grace to the Jews, 
they didn't deserve salvation. They were obstinate, stubborn. They had all the laws and oracles of God, but they didn't pay attention. They didn't follow after God. And then God saved them and gave an opportunity for salvation to them. But then consider the grace of the Gentiles. They were far off, ignorant, strangers, corrupt, didn't even know about God in terms of a specific revelation. But God brought the gospel to them. Christ's death is able to save them. Save us. God, because he is that good, chose to bring the far off near and save them by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. This is a wonderful, wonderful revelation from God. What, what an unexpected, though foretold, reality that is clearly displayed in this passage. Now, you might have been asking yourself this question as we went through the passage and even as we've discussed it. Were Cornelius and his household already saved before Peter spoke to them? After all, they are said to be God-fearers. Peter, or I'm sorry, the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers and alms have gone up before God as a memorial. It's hard to see that description applying to somebody who doesn't know God. So in one sense, we could say, yeah, they were already saved. And they're not that different than the Ethiopian eunuch. But there was a difference. It was not, they were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They had not seen the culmination of their salvation. They had believed that Yahweh is merciful, that they needed him for salvation. They believed his words, but they hadn't seen how Yahweh's salvation had been provided. They were missing out on one of the great blessings, the full revelation of God. And so it was important for them to hear the message and to believe it. Now, is it possible for them to have believed in Yahweh and then not believe in Christ? To be saved, but then not embrace Christ? Well, no. Those who, those who really belong to God, they can't help but acknowledge Christ as Messiah. We, we kind of see this a number of different times in Acts. People who don't know the full message of, of salvation in terms of Jesus specifically, or even about the Holy Spirit. When they're told it, they readily embrace it. It is a serious cause for concern if someone says, I believe in Yahweh, and then when they're told the message about Christ, they don't accept it. Now, there's something seriously wrong there. So, in a sense, this household was already saved, and in another sense, it, it hadn't, hadn't uh, encountered the fullness of that salvation blessing yet. Dwayne, it looks like you want to say something. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, Dwayne. We're actually not going to read this passage. I will refer to it again in just a second. But Acts 11 does describe uh, the situation that those Gentile God-fearers were in was one in which they needed to be saved. 
And the message was, you will be saved if you believe this. But from what we also observed in the beginning of the passage, they're doing some things that seem impossible for somebody who's not already saved to have something said about them. So there's this, there's this bit of tension there. But I think in one sense, it, um, like you said, Dwayne, there was, there was something missing in their understanding of salvation, their appreciation of salvation. It's kind of like um, when when certain God-fearers were looking forward to the Messiah in general, the Bible describes it as someone is coming to save you. Unless Jesus actually came, even if you believed in God, your salvation would never actually occur. He, he needs to, uh, there needs to be manifest the one who, who actually is going to bring about salvation. So there's that, that tension there, but they already were God-fearers, and yet, if they had not embraced the message about Christ, they would not actually be saved. We need to move on just because we're, oh, I want to make sure we get through everything, but even another question or comment about that, we can, we can come back to it. And one other thing you might've noticed that's kind of interesting in this passage. Why is it that the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles in a way that's different than it came upon the Samaritans? If you remember, the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans only after they believed, after they were baptized, and after the apostles, Peter and John, laid hands on the Samaritan believers. Why did God do it differently with the Gentiles? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I think what we can say, though, is God wanted to accomplish something specific for each group of people. And he determined that doing it in the way he did was the best way for it to be accomplished for each of those groups. Perhaps the Lord wanted to show something about the connection between the Jews and the Samaritans, and that's why he had the Holy Spirit come the way upon them that it did. But certainly we can see that the way that the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles is extremely significant because it makes totally clear that there is no work, right, or submission to Judaism required from the Gentiles for salvation. If he had caused the Holy Spirit to come upon them like it did the Samaritans, there may have been some confusion. Do the Gentiles really need to become Jews? But that's not the way God chose to do it. God chose to do what he felt was right and, and um, what would be the best for each group. Now, did the Jewish Christians wholeheartedly embrace God's unveiled development in his salvation plan? Well, not all of them. We're not going to read it, but Duane has already alluded to Acts 11. There's uh, an epilogue to this whole event. When Peter returns to Jerusalem, Acts 11 tells us how a certain group of Christians there, Jewish Christians, actually condemned Peter for what he did. They tell him, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. How dare you? And they were feeling the same uh, compulsion to obey Jewish law as Peter had initially. But when these Christians heard from Peter what had happened about their various visions and how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, they acknowledged that God has indeed extended salvation grace even to the Gentiles. And they glorified God. But as I mentioned in the beginning, this would not be the last conflict over what is required of Gentiles in the church. There's a reason that there's a Jerusalem council in Acts 15 
And there's a reason that we have the various letters of Paul that stress repeatedly that you do not need to submit to any sort of Old Testament ritual or ceremonial law. And that if you do so, you are dangerously close to missing out on salvation totally because you're submitting to salvation by works. That's Paul's great point in Galatians. And of course, these things come up also. Uh, there's a connection in Ephesians, Colossians, and other letters of Paul. There's a constant push. You will see, and you probably have already seen, there has been a constant push in the history of the church to add external, ritualistic, Old Testament law back into Christianity. It was true right at the beginning. And it's still true today. There are various cults, various movements, even within the church now, that say, hey, we need to obey these various Old Testament rituals. We need to become like Jews. But that contradicts the New Testament. It contradicts even the passage that we've been looking at today. But why? Why would early Jewish Christians, why would others throughout history want to insist that the Gentiles need to follow the Jewish restrictions, receive circumcision, keep dietary laws, even keep the Sabbath in order to be saved or acceptable to God? Why insist on that? Hmm. Yeah, I think we could answer the question a number of ways. What you said is that they wanted to hold to tradition. I think someone mentioned that something that they, it was what they were comfortable with. They didn't want to move on from what they had already held to. There's a mixture of a fear of man there, certainly in Hebrews, but in other sections of scripture, it's if you keep all the ceremonial things, then you're not going to offend the Jews. That's what they were most concerned about, the external requirements of the law. That was a way to avoid persecution. That was a way to keep your family, social connections, etc. So there's a, an element of the fear of man. But I think you can also say that there's an element of pride there. Pride in maybe one of two senses. One is that, that, that pride that still thinks works are necessary for salvation. That for a particular person, this is certainly true of the Judaizers and those who are of the branch of the Pharisees that show up in the early church, they still believe in salvation by works for themselves. They've just added Jesus to it. It's faith and works. And because they believe that for themselves, they must see that view affirmed in other people. They must see it affirmed in the Gentiles. They can't abide mere faith to save someone. They must insist on adherence to the Old Testament law because that's what they still believe is necessary for themselves which is a pride in their own ability to achieve salvation forced upon others. Perhaps alongside with, or alternatively, it is a pride that believes that what I have chosen in my own life to follow God is the best way. And therefore everyone, and if anyone wants to be saved or acceptable to God, he must do exactly as I do. He must reach my standard. Otherwise, he clearly will not please or be acceptable to God. I think pride is definitely involved in this 
adherence to the Old Testament law and wanting to put it on others. But other things could be involved there, like fear of man. Now, what will the rest of the book of Acts be about? It will be about what's really unveiled in this chapter. Starting in chapter 11, going forward in 13, the rest, we see the gospel brought to the Gentiles, proclaimed all throughout the Gentile world, especially through the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. Now, this book, Acts, has been full of surprises. And we've seen another one this morning. God formerly, or formally, affirms Gentile believers in Christ to be a true and equal part of his church and inheritors of every salvation blessing without becoming Jews themselves. Now, I want to mention a few points of application for you to consider as we close today. I've got four questions here for you to think about. What does this all mean for us today? First, consider your own view of salvation. Do you yourself have salvation by faith alone in Jesus alone? Or are you still holding to some kind of work or ritual to make you acceptable to God? Have you forgotten what Romans 3.20 says, which says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. No flesh will be made acceptable. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not acceptable, and your works will not make you acceptable. We cannot work our way back to God. We cannot do enough good deeds. We cannot say enough prayers. We cannot give enough money. Nothing will make us acceptable to God except faith in his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, but he became a man for our sake, living a perfectly righteous life and dying an innocent death in order that he might fully pay for the sins of all who believe in him and might give them, those persons, his perfect righteousness. Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to the Father, as proven by Jesus rising from the dead and his exaltation to the Father's right hand. And Jesus will return, just as Peter said, Jesus will return one day to judge every man according to his deeds. And only those who are clothed in Jesus' own righteousness will be saved. So, is that you? Do you trust in Jesus alone to save you? Do you embrace everything that he himself declared? That he is Lord, he is Savior, he is God, he is your righteousness. You know what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Second question. Do you love the Lord for including you in his salvation plan? You didn't deserve it, whether Jew or Gentile. If you're a Gentile, consider what grace has been shown to you by God bringing you near, giving you full salvation blessing. You didn't deserve a seat at God's table. You were far off, unclean, totally undeserving of God's grace. Have you understood that? Do you meditate on your un unworthiness to be blessed and exalted by God? Third question. Are there certain groups today to which you are prejudiced when it comes to salvation? 
believing that they cannot be saved, shouldn't be saved, or simply not worth the effort in seeing saved. I could go through a number of examples, but we don't have time. Do you not see that whatever group you consider to be unclean are no more unclean than you were before you were saved? And that Jesus is able to make even those persons fellow heirs and citizens by his power? Do not be prejudiced and do not be afraid. Show the love to others that has been shown to you and see if God is likewise going to grant them repentance, just as he granted you repentance. Remember what James said, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then finally, do you lay certain unbiblical requirements on others for the sake of tradition or simply to make those persons more like yourself? We have a number of traditions in our Christianity in America today. But we must be careful that we don't end up laying on others commands that go beyond the scriptures. There are many things the Bible doesn't address specifically. The Bible gives us principles for those specific things. But do we go beyond the principles? Do we start, instead of teaching everybody, according to the Great Commission, do we, instead of teaching them what Jesus commanded, do we teach them what we've commanded or what men have commanded? We want to truly obey the Great Commission and not fall into the same trap that some of the early Jewish Christians did by unhelpfully and pridefully forcing on others a standard that was not what God actually required. Now that's it for this week. Next week is review day in most of the classes. We're going to be doing something special in the adult Sunday school class. We're going to do a special lesson on the biblical languages and how you can benefit, even if you're not a pastor, in understanding some things about the biblical languages. If you have any other questions or comments, you can email me. Let's close in prayer. Lord and God, thank you for giving us a seat at your table. We didn't deserve it. Lord, you've done such great things for us in salvation. Lord, we thank you because... Of all the realities that there are, this is the greatest. All these things in the world are passing away, but your salvation lasts forever. And I pray that the people would appreciate that in an even more profound way as a result of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you. I will see you next week.